So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains some pretty graphic descriptions of violence, so it may not be suitable for everyone. After he graduated from university, Jesse Rosenfeld went to work as a reporter in Israel and the occupied territories. I arrived the first week the siege of Gaza began as Israel declared it a hostile territory. And every night I could sort of hear my, uh, I get woken up by my neighbor's gates being blown off in an Israeli raid and you know, family screaming, guy dragged out and thrown into a jeep. But three years later in 2010, he came back home to Toronto to visit his family and to report on the upcoming G20 summit for The Guardian, the British newspaper. The summits were stories that had always interested me. When I was a teenager, I went to the FTAA summit in Quebec City from the protests there. I had grown up on the left. Immediately, he could feel the tension. Entire sections of Toronto were being fenced off, and the police were everywhere. After all, well over a billion dollars had been spent on the security operation. The media had dubbed it Fortress Toronto. The cops were operating almost on a mentality that they felt there could be some kind of terrorist attack at any minute. And were also very sensitive to the growing sense of hostility to their presence in Toronto as well. Sometime in the week before the G20 began, Jesse and his friend Oren, an Israeli photographer who was also in town to document the summit, decided to take a closer look at the preparations. It was the biggest security operation ever to take place on Canadian soil. 20,000 police officers were involved, with some of them coming from places as far away as Alberta and Newfoundland. And we're walking around uh, downtown, and he's photographing some of the infrastructure. And Jesse, probably a little bit too loudly, made a kind of snide comment about the cops increasingly looking like Israeli stormtroopers preparing for a nighttime raid a police officer overheard. He gets pissed off, turns around, yells at me. He's like, who are you? What are you doing here? Are you an activist? Like, that gets my credentials. And Oren's just kind of like wandering around photographing this stuff. And then the cop is, uh, he's getting really annoyed at me. I'm like, look, I'm just a journalist covering this. I'm sorry you got offended. And he's like, I can have your press credentials trashed and all this sort of thing. That same week, the Prine family was finalizing their plans to come into Toronto for the G20. John Prine was in his late 50s, lived in Niagara, and worked for the Canada Revenue Agency. When he was 40 years old, he had lost his leg in an accident on the Christmas tree farm he owned with his wife. I was out in the fields uh, doing mowing, and I uh, went off to tractor to have a look at something that had come loose, and my pant leg got caught in the power takeoff on the tractor. 
it uh, ripped, literally ripped my leg right off, just up to the knee. Ever since then, he's gotten around with the help of a prosthetic leg. It was his wife Susan's idea to go into Toronto for the G20. At the time of the G20, I was at home on the farm, not working because I have chronic fatigue syndrome. But I left work and I had taken on a number of community volunteer work that I was interested in, things that I didn't think were going right. And I suggested to John that it would be a good idea if he came because it would be a chance for us to visit with Sarah in Toronto, have a couple meals together, be part of the People's First March. Their daughter Sarah was a student at the University of Guelph. And she was unhappy with the Canadian government's policies, especially in how they were impacting Indigenous people in Canada, as well as people in other countries. And she had attended meetings planning for the protests that weekend. She even had a few run-ins with one of the undercover officers we reported on in our last episode. I met Brenda Dogerty. I remember she offered me a ride to a G20 organizational meeting that was happening and I decided to say no. I think I I just walked there instead. I saw her again a couple times in Toronto leading up to the G20 and she was always very friendly, always very earnest. Sarah, Susan and John all decided that they wanted to attend the protests and well, why not make a family weekend of it? I went up to Toronto really to, well, to take part in the G20, but also to spend some time with my daughter and my wife. And for me, it was a bit of a a vacation to get off the farm and uh, from work. They arrived on Friday night. Sarah went to go stay with a friend while John and Susan decided to go for a walk. We wanted to take a look at the fence because there was so much uh, in the news about it. It was quiet. Uh, We went out, um, had a look at the fence. The fence that they're referring to was the barrier created to separate the area where the summit was taking place from the rest of the city. It was manned by heavily armored police officers. Both John and Susan were disturbed by the apparent militarization of the city. I was upset because I knew before I got to Toronto about this wall and the cost of the wall and the cost of the whole G20 conference. So we wanted to go down to see the wall. I was upset by the amount of uh, military, police, RCMP in the city. After taking a look at the fence, they decided to head back to the house they were staying in and call it a night. The next day, Saturday, June 26th, was the big day when the People First March would take place. It was the main event where thousands of people, representing a range of organizations and causes, would all protest together in downtown Toronto. Jesse Rosenfeld and Susan John and Sarah Prine were all planning to attend. But none of them knew what they were in for. And by the end of the day, three of them would find themselves in police custody. Today, few can recall what the world leaders gathered at the Toronto G20 summit discussed. But the memory of the total impunity with which the police operated is still sharp. Journalists, lawyers, and medics were prevented from doing their jobs. Over a thousand people were detained, most of them arbitrarily. 
Many were beaten in the streets, others were kettled or locked in cages without charge, and still others were denied access to legal counsel. The G20 summit was an orgy of police misconduct with few precedents in Canadian history. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. Jesse Rosenfeld and his photographer friend Oren had stayed over at Jesse's parents' house the night before the big protest. They had attended some marches in the days before and noticed that the clashes between protesters and police along the fringes of the demonstrations were heating up. I remember sort of heading out the door, saying to my partner actually at the time that I think things are actually going to be pretty bad out there today. (laughs) And her being like, yeah, it looks that way, don't get arrested. Jesse and Oren made their way to Queen's Park, where the People First March was scheduled to start. For those of you not familiar with Toronto, Queen's Park is a mid-sized park in the downtown of the city. And it's also the unofficial name of the Ontario Legislature, which sits inside the park. Queen's Park was the designated free speech zone for the G20, a place where protesters were encouraged to go. It's over two and a half kilometers from the Metro Toronto Convention Centre, where the actual summit was taking place. When Jesse got there, he saw the usual cornucopia of homemade signs and banners for all manner of causes. People were there protesting against austerity and pollution and for the rights of migrants and indigenous peoples. And then there were the puppets. I first saw them at the FTAA summit in Quebec City in like 2000. There was a thing called like Bread and Puppets Theater. You know, lefty artists getting craftsy and like clearly having a lot of material. It was everything you would expect from all those big anti-G8, G20, or you know, global justice summit demonstrations. It had all those flavors, all the sounds of it, the bopple heads of world leaders. John, Susan, and Sarah Prine all got to Queen's Park in time for the march to start. When the march started, I thought it was more like a parade, or it seemed that way to me. Things were calm. People were seemed to be in a in a good mood from what I saw. I saw people I knew in the march and people were blowing horns and talking. Things seemed to be going all right. It had a very festive feel to it and you could feel that there was obviously a great sense of community in the march. People were just having a good time. We were walled by police on both sides of the street. He'd obviously taken security very, very seriously. Between 7,000 and 9,000 people had gathered for the People First March. It started by proceeding south toward the convention center. The crowd was boisterous and chanting slogans like, The G8, G20, they are few and we are many. During the, uh, the march or the parade itself, it, it was, uh, to me, it was joyful. I had a whistle with me. I was blowing it all the time. I was waving my hand. I was watching other people. The police presence wasn't overwhelming, but there were a good number of officers around. There were bike cops flanking the marchers and helicopters circling overhead. John thought he could see cops or soldiers poking their heads out of windows of the nearby towers. Sarah was on the lookout for people in the crowd who could also be cops. 
I kind of had my eyes open for plain clothes police officers because I know those um, are used in protest sometimes and are used to incriminate people. As the march wound its way deeper into downtown Toronto, a group of black bloc protesters gathered in the middle and at the rear. Then they started to peel away. got is you've got like these uh, turns into snake marches through the business uh, core, at least yeah, where I'm following. They began by throwing down newspaper boxes and garbage cans to create street barricades. And then they started to break windows and kick over ATM machines. People are just kind of running off from the side of it to spray paint on a bank or smash its windows or it was a pre-written script for what happens when uh, <laughs> the anger of capital hits the financial district. The police were almost nowhere to be found. They had been so focused on protecting the fence that formed a perimeter around the summit venue that there weren't many officers stationed elsewhere in the city. And the riot gear many of them had was so heavy that it made it hard to move quickly, leaving them perpetually a step behind the black block. The rioters continued to smash their way through downtown and even set two police cars on fire. Here's Global News' Jackson Prosco reporting live from the scene. This is Jackson Prosco near King and Bay. There is a police car on fire, what appears to be in the middle of the intersection right now. I'm looking at about 50 riot squad police marching down the middle of the street towards that action. But the burning car is in the middle of the intersection at King and Bay, casting a pall of thick black smoke through the middle of the intersection. It's really an ominous scene. We're also hearing what I believe is tear gas being fired back and forth between the two sides. And then... Most of the black blocks started to circle back around to the main march and began to strip off their black clothing. It's hilarious because you're like, you know, walking down the street and you've just had a bunch of people like smash a bunch of windows, spray paint a bunch of shit, looking, you know, like a 20 something person today with sunglasses that doesn't want to give their friend plague. And then you start to notice that, oh, there's less of them around and. Oh, there's a bandana over there, and someone's jeans are over there, and that looks like a terrible hoodie that to lose over there. <laughs> and like they basically kind of leave their laundry out for the cops to pick up as they melt into the crowd and disappear. The Prine family had no idea any of this was going on. They had just continued to march forward with the main group, chanting and blowing on their whistles. But all of a sudden the march came to a halt. And around the corner, there was a whole line of police on horses, just there, and a whole group of people, and everything stopped. It stopped for a very long period of time. Susan uh, didn't like the atmosphere there, and, and so we agreed we would separate and then meet back at Queen's Park. Susan went to go get a cup of tea. Meanwhile, John and Sarah went to City Hall to use the bathrooms. That's when they noticed some of the broken windows nearby and started to piece together what had happened. They slowly made their way to Queen's Park. When they finally got there, everything seemed normal. They went to the spot where they'd agreed to meet Susan. By that time, Jesse Rosenfeld was also back in Queen's Park. He saw some fighting at the edges of the free speech zone. 
So then I decided to hang out in Queens Park. There are arrests going on the fringes, but it's a good time to do interviews. What none of them knew was that the Toronto police leadership was furious that the Black Bloc had been allowed to rampage through the financial and shopping districts. Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair called in his commanders and asked them why there had been no cops there to stop them. Deputy Chief Tony War gave an order to the night shift commander, Restore order. Take back the streets. And the place they were going to start was the free speech zone at Queen's Park. Inside the park, John and Sarah were looking for a place to rest. And I was tired and I was sore from the march. I'm an above-the-knee amputee. And during the march, I used two walking sticks, one in each hand to aid me in my walking. So by the time I got back to Queen's Park, which is about four or five hours later, and being on my feet that long, I did want to sit down. So we went and we sat down beside two men and they mentioned to us that they weren't there as protesters or as participants that they had a connection with Amnesty International so they were just there to observe what was happening. Their names were Steve and Josh. We sat down with them and we chatted a little bit then the police came up behind us. The police had begun pinning people in and they kept telling them to move. I was in like a t-shirt dressed casually. All these police were armored and they all had weapons on them. Like they were bristling with weapons. They come up uh, behind us and they say, move. Well, Sarah, Steve and Josh, they jump up right away, really quickly. But I'm sitting down and I want to grab my walking sticks before I get back up. And I want to make sure it's uh, safe for me to stand up. I tried to show, you know, let him get up. He has one leg. You know, what are you doing? And then all of a sudden I heard a a yell that, that to me said, get the four of them. And then all of a sudden somebody tackled me, like right into the head. I think they jumped on top of me and pinned me to the ground with their knee holding down on my head on the left-hand side. I was being pinned into the ground. And then it seemed as though there were four or five police piled on top of me. They kept shouting at John that he was resisting arrest. And uh, one of them had his knee in my, my head. He was grinding my head into the ground. Somebody was on pinned my legs to the ground. Somebody had my arms. My right arm was pinned below me. Somebody was grabbing my uh, left arm and pulling it behind my back. While that was happening, I was getting pushed, shoved, punched by the police officers. There was no time to react to their orders. At least for me, they were immediately upon me, these huge, huge men. And as I was shouting and being punched, at some point, a police officer grabbed my hair, grabbed my hair, and then started to drag me away by the hair. And he didn't just drag me a little bit, he dragged me till eventually he ripped a chunk of my hair out. Meanwhile, the officers had zip-tied John and gotten him into a sitting position. 
His glasses had fallen off, but he had been able to grab them off the ground with his mouth. All I see around me is blurry white faces looking at me. One of the white guys, he walks up closer to me and he tells me to walk. The order was so ridiculous. I've got my glasses in my mouth and, and, I, shot, and I just said, I can't! And so then he walks up and he yanks my artificial leg off. The police had just ripped off a part of John Prine's body. With, with no cause, I mean, I, I can't explain. Uh, oh, I mean, it was my leg, it was my body, and uh, he had no right to touch. Uh, it was my leg, it was my artificial leg. I lived with it for uh, 20 years. He yanks off my leg, and, and then he, said, he orders me to hop. Uh, which is such a ridiculous command. It just says, hop! And again, I said, my glasses were clenched beneath my uh, mouth, and I said, I can't. And then he says, you asked for it. So two police come up to me, one under each armpit. They hoist me up into the air, and my hands are zip-tied behind my back at the same time. So it was incredibly painful. They just hoist me in the air, flip me up on my back, and then start to drag me on the pavement on my back. And my elbows are digging into the pavement and I'm screaming in pain. I was hoping somebody would notice it and stop it. And none of the, none of the police stopped it. John hears some other officers approach, saying that they're with the Toronto police. He's dropped onto the ground, and his glasses fall out of his mouth. But the police refuse to pick them up for him. Four cops lift him off the ground, two carrying him by his arms, one by his leg, and one grabbing the empty pant leg where his artificial limb had been. But as they're carrying me, they all start hitting me. I thought it was with their fist or with their batons, and they're shouting things like, oh, he's got a weapon. And then they all hit me in the body. Whack, 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 whack. They're all hitting me. And then another one shouts out, he's a spitter. And then they all start hitting me again. He gets thrown down and pinned to the ground. And one of the officers then rummages through his pockets. He throws away John's whistle and takes 30-odd dollars from John's wallet. Meanwhile, Sarah is also being taken away by the police. I was panicking because I had no idea what had happened to my father. And the last I'd seen, he was getting beaten up by huge strangers for no reason. I was zip-tied. I was told that I was under arrest. I was photographed. My things were taken away. I had leg cuffs put on me. Then I was at first loaded into a police van. As I sat there really shocked and stunned and in pain, the door opened and one of the the young men who had been sitting beside us came in. He was put in the same section of the van as me and he was covered with blood. He was covered with blood. It was just going down his face. From inside the police van, Sarah soon spotted her father. And I could see my father being held by the police, maybe 20 meters away from me. And I couldn't see very well, but he looked awful. He looked awful. His glasses were gone. His leg was gone. And I tried to shout out to him. 
And then I hear Sarah's voice. She called out to me. I did hear her. And one of the police officers says, oh, you must be really proud of your daughter. And I said I was. The police tossed John into a police van where he waited for at least an hour, still without his artificial leg. Eventually, Sarah and John were both loaded onto a bus along with many other people who were being detained. And I remember looking out the window of the bus and seeing two black individuals on the ground and the the police were kicking them even though they were already on the ground. And then I remember at some point, my father walked by me on the bus and he looked, he looked exactly as he described himself. He looked awful. After Susan Prine had split off from her husband and daughter earlier in the day, she had a cup of tea. I went into a restaurant and I looked at the television and they said that there had been terrible something happened, terrible Queen Spark, and I thought, uh-oh. The march was long past, so she walked back to Queen's Park by herself. When she got there, she saw a line of police and a line of protesters screaming at each other. And I said, I said to a group of people, have you seen a man and a daughter is looking for John and Sarah? And they said, no, but they're getting ready to bring tear gas out again. And that's when I left Queen's Park and went back to the home. We were staying in Toronto. I was hoping when I got back that I would find them there. Jesse Rosenfeld had watched from afar as the police tried to disperse the crowd at Queen's Park. I hear them and I kind of see in the distance, oh, what I see is basically a few flashbangs and some tear gas go off. And then I see some riot cops uh, charging. He saw the police rush the protesters to get them running. Then they would stop, and a few minutes later, they'd do it again. Some groups of officers would split off, grab a few people, and then detain them. That lasted about half an hour. The bulk of the demonstration was dispersed. The Black Bloc and the police were still clashing in other parts of the city, but the people remaining at Queen's Park were looking for somewhere to go. Many of them marched back into the financial district, and Jesse followed. This is what's interesting about the crowd at this point. It's all people who've been pushed out of Queen's Park. So really what you're dealing with is a mix of like mid-ranking labor activist uh, leadership. Not only student activists, but like student union leadership. Eventually, a decision was made. They would march to the Novotel Hotel. So basically the Novotel Hotel, it's, it's right near Union Station in Toronto. It is a mid-range uh, hotel that's attached to a string of 80s-era condos, maybe 70s-era condos, across from what was my favorite childhood institution, the Organ Grinder. A number of lower-level G20 delegates were staying at the Novotel, and some of the hotel workers there were also on strike. So there was this joint thing of, well, we've got delegates staying around here, we can pen them in, and we can support striking workers. This is exactly the message that we want to send about what the austerity economy and what the G20 wants to do to a global economy in this moment. The Novotel is located on the Esplanade, close to the financial district, and not far from where the G20 summit was being held. It's a fairly narrow street behind a major uh, classical concert hall in the St. Lawrence Market. Protesters streamed onto the esplanade, chanting anti-G20 and pro-worker slogans. 
And as the protest coalesced around the hotel, the police were not far behind. Little by little, the crowd of around 300 people was surrounded by cops in riot gear. But inside the cordoned off area, you could still easily walk around. It was interesting because as the cops are penning everyone in, I see Steve Pakin across the way. Steve Pakin is the longtime host of The Agenda, Ontario's premier current affairs show. He's sort of looking around a little, you know, a little frantically about, like, how do I get out of here? Which way is this going to go? I don't know what, you know, what's going on with the protesters. I don't know what's going on with the cops. Jesse walked over to Pakin and introduced himself. He told him that there was a group of journalists nearby, and it was probably about time for all of them to negotiate their way out. And I just sort of yell out for one of the cops and said, hey, we're a bunch of journalists here. Where do you want us to be? You know, how can we negotiate this? We don't want to get arrested. We're working. A cop came over and told them that what was happening was an illegal assembly. Jesse countered by asking if the cops really wanted to arrest a group of journalists just standing around. The cop went to talk to a higher up and came back. So what we're going to do is we're going to open, have a little check over on the side, which is a few meters from me. You guys come through, show us your IDs, you can uh, come through fine. And everyone starts to file through. Since Jesse was the journalist doing the negotiating, he went last to make sure that everyone else made it through. Now, I don't have a summit lanyard. For some reason that I don't actually know to this day, my press credentials were not granted, even though they were in process. But Jesse had other press badges that he showed the officer. He even Googled himself on his smartphone to pull up his journalist bio. The officer grabbed Jesse's press pass and went to talk to his superior. And, you know, I hear another cop say, oh, that's the loudmouth kid from the other day. The cop came back and said that they're not going to let Jesse go through. What's going on here? Like, I literally just negotiated for the press to come through as a journalist have given you evidence. Like, no, no, you're going you're gonna to be under arrest. I was like, this is ridiculous. Okay, fine. Just let me, like, go back into the crowd. And then, then they grabbed me. Two cops were restraining him. And they told Jesse that he's under arrest. Here's Steve Pagan speaking to the Real News Network about what he saw. Jesse wasn't rude and he wasn't belligerent, but he continued to press them. Why are you detaining me? Why won't you let me do my job? I'm here from The Guardian. It's a reputable newspaper. A third police officer wearing T-shirts and shorts, not riot gear, walked over and just hauled back and gave him one right in the gut. Then they hit me in the stomach. I double over, and then I get a elbow right into my back that knocks me to the ground, and uh, they pounce on me and start sort of wailing on me. Got a knee on my back, my, yeah, my, uh, my head's being thrown into the concrete, being punched in the back. As he's being beaten, Jesse kept telling the police that he's not resisting arrest, but they don't stop. He was worried that they might break a bone. Eventually, they relented, pulled him off to the side, and handcuffed him. He kept telling them that he's just a reporter. And after they rifled through his bag, which contained a microphone and notebooks, Jesse could see that they realized he wasn't lying. And then they start walking me off to the van, and the cop says, you know, loudly in front of everyone, he's like, you know, Jesse, you really are an all right guy, but you can't resist arrest. And I say loudly enough back for everyone to hear, I wasn't resisting arrest. You guys just beat me while I was reporting. <laughs> they threw Jesse into a police van destined for the Eastern Avenue Detention Center. 
the Eastern Avenue Detention Center was a makeshift jail made for the G20 summit. It was constructed in only four months. No one on the planning team had any experience with mass detention facilities. The police converted a film studio into a maze of holding cells. First, there were the cages where people would be held before they were charged. Each contained a bright orange porta potty with a door ripped off. And then, after detainees were processed, they'd be taken to tiny rooms with a single bench. Some of the first individuals to be detained there were the people we heard about in our last episode, who had been arrested early Saturday morning and charged with conspiracy. Here's Alex Hunter describing what he saw. And the place was so big that in the process of moving kind of around it in the stages of processing, I only even saw one of my other co-accused once and like we couldn't even yell to each other. The place was so big. And here's Terrence Luscombe. It was almost comical at that point because it was like empty and it was huge and so ramshackle kind of and just thrown together. I just hung out in one of those cells along with another gentleman who ended up being brought in. He was not even a protester. (laughs) He's just been picked up apparently going to buy pizza somewhere. But by the time Sarah and John Prine arrived, Alex, Terrence, and the others charged with conspiracy had already been taken to court and then to actual jails. The bus that Sarah and John were on pulled right into the detention center. Sarah was taken into one of the cages and then was formally charged with obstructing justice. I was processed by uh, being presented to a police constable for questioning. I was brought to him in a room in the detention center. He went through my belongings in front of me, but I did not respond to the police constable. I exercised my right to remain silent throughout. Throughout my time in the detention center, I was moved around at least 10 different times to different cages with various different people. Jesse Rosenfeld remembers being driven into a concrete garage-like environment. And there's just hundreds of people all handcuffed, all kind of waiting to be, you know, sort of processed through this thing. Right from the outset, there was a spirit of collective resistance amongst the detainees. People would loudly chant the number for legal defense for anyone who needed it. Some prisoners actually started singing. We started singing Queen, like Bohemian Rhapsody, to keep spirits up, and just other fun songs. Jesse kept seeing people that he knew brought into the detention center. I was watching friends of mine who were editors at the Daily being brought into prison. It was like watching your community or the people that you grew up with all land in jail with you. It was at that point you kind of knew that this was a campaign against the entire left that had been run by the Harper government and it didn't care whether they were, you know, left-wing journalists, lawyers, or activists. The cells the detainees were brought into were incredibly cramped. Jesse and his fellow inmates had to take turns standing and sitting. As more and more people were packed in, the conditions worsened. Food and water were distributed haphazardly, and even then, the food amounted to cheese on bread. If they needed to go to the bathroom, detainees had to start chants just to get noticed by the cops. People were denied access to their medications, sometimes with devastating consequences. 
one of the guys I'm with doesn't have his medication. He had muscle inflammation issues. And over the period in which we're in the cell, his shoulders dislocate as things dragged on through the days. You could tell that, like, the cops were starting to realize that the situation was unattainable even based on their uh, general standard operating procedures because they changed from, like, just being angry or pretending they could do something. They said, what am I going to do? I'm just following orders here. To tell a journalist, I'm just following orders, and you're just asking for them to make a quip about you being a fascist. But some detainees never even made it to the holding cells. Instead, they remained stuck in the processing cages. And that's what happened to John Prime. When John arrived, he was at the back of the police bus, zip-tied and still without the artificial leg that the cops had ripped off of him. They brought the whole bus into the detention center, so it was inside. They had a wheelchair there, and then one of the police had my leg. And then one of the uh, police said, should we give him his leg back? And then the the cop said, no, uh, he can use it as a weapon. So they wouldn't give me my artificial leg back. Instead, they put me in this very old, uh, rickety uh, wheelchair with no cushion on it. And then they pushed me in a cage, a big cage, and I was in there by myself. Nobody else was in the cage. He was in that cage for an hour or so by himself. And that's when they bring up another gentleman. He's also in a wheelchair. They wheel him up to the cage, and he's very upset. He's screaming. He's swearing. And this is Gabriel Jacobs. Jacobs was an indigenous man who was panhandling on the Saturday of the G20. He had bent over to pick up a cigarette butt when the police accused him of puncturing the tire of a police car. Jacobs has said that he didn't even know what the G20 was. When he was brought into the detention center, the police took away his motorized wheelchair. He's pleading with the police to have his special wheelchair returned to him. They dumped him into, uh, again, into a rickety old wheelchair that was obviously uh, no good for him. Jacobs tried to tell them that his body had become accustomed to that chair, and it was painful for him to sit in anything else. But even after a half hour of pleading, they refused to give it back to him. Like John, Gabriel Jacobs was never formally charged. The police never even recorded their names. But the two of them continued to sit there, handcuffed. Pam and I are in the cage. Uh, we're, we're by ourselves at first, uh, just the two of us. And uh, he needs to go to the washroom. Gabriel Jacobs needs to go to the washroom. The only washroom available was the bright orange porta potty, which clearly wouldn't be able to accommodate a person with Jacobs' disability. Three officers came into the cage to try to lift Jacobs and take him to the bathroom. They can't even get through the door to get him up to the toilet. And I'm sitting in my wheelchair, you know, outside the toilet, but I hear what's going on. And I hear a lot of noise going on. And Gabriel's yelling at them. And and he says, he can't do it. He can't do it. And and then I hear the police swearing. And they're yelling at uh, Gabriel. And then eventually they bring Gabriel back away from the the toilet. uh, And they dump him on a bench. They don't put him back into that wheelchair, but they lay him out on a bench. And he's soaking wet. The police had refused to take off Jacob's handcuffs so that he could go to the bathroom. 
So they dump him on the bench. He's soaking wet from the urine and he's smelling. And, and then eventually he rolls off the bench because he can't keep himself on the bench. I mean, he can't keep himself on the bench. So he, he rolls onto the cold floor. It's cement, it's cold, and he's lying there. He's soaked in urine and fecus and he's smelling. He asks the, the, the police to help him and they tell him, oh, you have to wait. We have to call somebody to get you off the floor. No one came to help Gabriel Jacobs. Eventually, another detainee was brought into the cage, and he was able to help Jacobs into his wheelchair. Soon, two more people were brought into the cage. John was the only one who was actually involved in a protest. The rest all said that they had nothing to do with the G20. As the hours went by, no one came to clean Jacobs. He had to sit there in his own waste throughout the whole night. And soon, it got cold in the detention facility. It was June, so most people were wearing t-shirts and shorts. I could hear it from the cages next to us. People were saying, I, I need a blanket, I'm cold. People were asking for water, and then a lot of people wanted to make phone calls. They said, my children won't, don't know where I am. Or they're calling out for their medicines. People wanted their medicines, and... A lot of people wanted to make phone calls to their loved ones, uh, but the, they weren't allowing this to happen. And I was hearing all of this uh, all through uh, Saturday and Sunday. Finally, on Sunday morning, some officers came into the cage to clean Gabriel Jacobs, and they brought him his motorized wheelchair. But when they returned... They forced Jacobs back into the rickety old chair that was causing him pain. He yelled and argued with the police, but not as long as last time. That same morning, Susan Prine woke up determined to find her husband and daughter. So I had a very restless night. When I woke up in the morning, I knew I had to go back down to the Convergence Center where we first met Sarah that was a gathering point for people that were involved in organizing. And when I got to the Convergence Center, I told them that my husband and daughter, I couldn't find them. And they said, there's a lot of bad things going on in Toronto. They said, the police have just gone crazy. They're arresting just anybody. And they gave me some information to try to call through to the Eastern Detention Center, but they said um, there was a group down at the Eastern Detention Center protesting. Susan went down to the library where activists and people doing legal support were holding a news conference to tell Torontonians to stay off the streets and inform them of the police abuses taking place. After that, the plan was to go back to the Convergence Center and then head to the place where the detainees were being jailed. And I was tired, and I had gone into a restaurant, and I was having a coffee, reading The Star. And when I came out, the Convergence Center was kettled. It was surrounded by police, and I thought, there's nothing I can do. But even if she had made it to the detention facility, Susan wouldn't have been safe from arbitrary arrest. Here's Jackson Prosco from Global News again, reporting live from the scene. Oh, 
This is Jackson Prosco outside the Eastern Avenue Detention Center, the temporary holding facility to build those swept up in arrest during the G20. There's a large peaceful protest taking place here. Police have held behind a line of about 150 protesters. Without warning, all of a sudden, two minivans pulled up in front of the group, and police raided the crowd and just grabbed whoever they could, stuffed them into vans, arrested whoever they could at the time, and drove away. This was without warning. It was completely unprovoked. We saw police literally just drive up at that moment and grab whoever they could near the front line. Susan walked all the way back to the house where she was staying. The city had been emptied out. And there was nobody on the streets. I was walking by myself. And then I went back into the home and I was watching television and I heard a knock on the front door and I could hear my husband's voice. She went to the door and immediately hugged him. And Susan says she could barely believe the story he was telling. And he was just so, so extremely upset. They soon found out that Sarah had made it out too and was back with her friend. Jesse Rosenfeld remembers how he was released that day. He says that the cops led him along the row of cages, brought him to the door, and then pushed him out. Pushed through uh, this kind of turnstile thing out into uh, this rainy, muddy patch outside the detention center or film center, hearing you know, behind me the echoes of a cop say, go torch some cars, you fucking hippie. His parents were waiting for him. He could see that his mom had tears in her eyes. They'd seen the news reports about his beating and his arrest, and they'd been desperately calling hospitals and courthouses all through the night. I look at both my parents, and they have this sunken exhaustion mixed with this elation that I'm standing there in front of them, and this sort of curious eye that is inspecting every nook and cranny of me as I stand before them just to truly make sure that I am okay and standing in front of them. And it's the only time I, uh, I've seen that look on my parents' face. But I've, I've seen that look a lot. And it's, it's the look of a parent's face when their kid walks out of uh, detention from military prison to Torah prison in Cairo to a Kurdish uh, journalist that walks out of a prison in Dierbecker and hugs his parents. That feeling that um, you could have been dead and I'm just happy you're standing in front of me and I just don't want to know anymore. Over 1,100 people were arrested the weekend of the G20. The mass arrests at Queen's Park and in front of the Novotel Hotel weren't the only ones to take place. On Sunday morning, Police invaded the Graduate Students' Union at the University of Toronto and rounded up hundreds of people who were staying there. On Sunday night, hundreds more people were pushed into a police kettle and forced to remain huddled inside it for four hours, even as a thunderstorm raged overhead. Eventually, Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair ordered them released. People were randomly picked up off the street. Their alleged crimes ranged from wearing black to having a cut on their arm or just looking suspicious to the cops. The stories of people who were severely beaten by the police are too numerous to recount. Many cops removed the name tags from their uniforms so that they couldn't be identified. Ninety Toronto police officers were eventually disciplined for having done so. But in the immediate aftermath, the police maintained that they had little to apologize for. 
Here's Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair speaking to Steve Pakin about the initial mass arrests at Queen's Park. Our response was determined entirely by the actions of the crowd. They became a mob. They became a mob. They began to commit crimes. They began to break windows, to burn cars, to hurt people, to loot and to steal. And and when they they changed their tactics, we responded to those tactics. I believe our, our response was proportional to the threat. I think it should be said here that John Prine, Sarah Prine, and Jesse Rosenfeld were not part of some violent mob. In the years since, numerous reviews have been conducted into what went wrong at the G20. Gabriel Jacobs filed a human rights complaint for how the police treated him and settled for an undisclosed sum. And late last year, after more than a decade, the Toronto police settled a class action suit for $16.5 million with around 1,100 people, including John Prine, who'd been detained. And as one of the conditions, the police were forced to apologize for the mass arrests. Well, sort of. Quote, We regret that mistakes were made, unquote, a Toronto police statement read. None of this has been good enough for John Prine. The police who attacked me and beat me up and robbed me, they never filed a report. They never came to see me. I've never heard from them. To this day, I really don't know who they are or what kind of people they are. All I know is... Can I say that? They were brutes. They were cowards. They were cowardly, and they were cowards to many people. How could anybody do that to Gabriel Jacobs? What kind of coward dragged somebody from their wheelchair? And 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 for people, police, not to know that that, that man needs his wheelchair and not to put Gabriel back in it. Uh, what kind of police do we have here in Canada? Uh, it's just amazing. It's still an unbelievable Ten years later, it's uh, ten and a half years later. John's mental health deteriorated after the G20. It impacted me uh, substantially. I've been in therapy for ten years, off and on. I retired from work early. I couldn't stand uh, working for the federal government. Like I said, I was an employee of Canada Revenue Agency. I was beaten up by, in a way, by my employer. I did try to go back to work, but I would just uh, sit there most of the day and I couldn't accomplish my duties. I was just sitting there, uh, I was frozen and uh, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I, I tried to get over what happened to me. I kept telling myself, oh, oh come on, it was only 28 hours of, of brutality and, and that I could get through it. And at, at the beginning, especially, I tried to push it away and push it out of my mind that, that I could get over it, that it was, you know, only 28 hours of my life. But it started to fill my dreams. I didn't want to deal with it. I just tried to hide from, uh, in a way, from uh, what had happened. I, I still can't uh, hardly discuss the brutality of having your uh, artificial uh, lake uh, yanked off. And then seeing what happened to uh, Gabriel Jacobs. So for the uh, last ten and a half years, it's been, in a way, mental uh, turmoil for me. And he has watched as Bill Blair, the man who largely oversaw the security operation at the G20, has gone on to be a liberal cabinet minister in the Trudeau government. John feels nothing but disgust. What can you say about a man like that? 
who allows his police officers to drag people from wheelchairs. He allows his police officers to pull off artificial legs. He allows his police officers to file false reports. And he did nothing about it. John moved to Canada from the Netherlands as a child. He worked for the federal government all his life. But after what the Canadian state did to him, he no longer feels any pride for his country. I will no longer stand up for O Canada. In fact, when people stand up and they sing this song of praise to Canada, I turn my back. You know, why would I sing a song of praise to uh, bullies and abusers? though the Prine family was devastated by what the police did to them at the G20, it hasn't stopped them from fighting for what they believe is right. Part of the reason we were all there in Toronto was we have a pronounced view of the inequality in society and the very wealthy and the very vulnerable. And despite what happened to this family at the G20, when they called to ask if we were going to go to Occupy Toronto, And I spoke to John, and he said, yes, I'm thinking of going to the march. And he was there, and I was there, and Sarah was there. And we still believe that it's wrong, the inequality in society, and we're prepared to do something about it. In 2015, John and Sarah cycled across the country in an attempt to raise awareness about what happened and shame former Prime Minister Stephen Harper into apologizing never did. Jesse Rosenfeld came back to Toronto to cover the legal proceedings of the people who are arrested and charged with conspiracy before the G20. And he's continued to report on conflicts in the Middle East. I've covered a lot of hostile environments. I've been in a ton of riots. And the only time I've ever gotten busted, uh, you know, is reporting on a story in my home city. Looking back on it now, Sarah Prine, doesn't believe that the G20 was some kind of an aberration. When police brutality happens, often it's behind closed doors and they're able to cover for each other. I think what makes the G20 different is the fact that all of this happened in broad daylight with hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. your episode of commons for the week if you want to support us click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and if you like our show go give us a rating and review in apple podcasts 
This episode relied on reporting done by Jesse Rosenfeld, the CBC's Fifth Estate, Jackson Prosco of Global News, Adrian Morrow of The Globe and Mail, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Rosalind Kafour and Dami Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.